This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 474. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. And I just want to take care of a couple of pieces of housekeeping before we get into today's broadcast. Uh, first, I just want to apologize. I've been AWOL from the podcast for about a month. Um, just been a super busy time. I'm creating some larger scale projects that are going to be released later this year that have been taking up more and more of my time as I get into the bulk of that. I'll be announcing those in a little bit. Um, and uh, it's just been busy. I've been traveling, been working, been gigging, doing all my my usual stuff, teaching, lots and lots of Skype teaching, etc. Um, so apologies for that, but we are back and in business. And hopefully uh, every two weeks I'll be releasing a new podcast here on Drummer's Resource. Um, just also want to make mention of one more thing. We've got, I think, nine people now signed up for the 2019 Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive. That is, uh, recording date here is early March. Um, the Jazz Intensive is about three months away, early June. So um, not a lot of spots left. If you're interested in that, please visit the uh, clinics and intensives tab on my website, danielglass.com, and we'll get you hooked up there. Come out to New York, spend four days and nights playing with me, uh, learning everything about jazz, immersing yourself in the jazz world of New York. And um, I'm about to announce the special guest who will be on this year's event. It's going to be a really incredible name in the jazz world, so I'm very excited about that. Okay, with all that said and done, I want to turn to the topic of today's podcast. Um, which is quite timely. Uh, just yesterday, the news um, sort of uh, ca- you know, came out that uh, Hal Blaine, the legendary studio drummer and member of the fabled Wrecking Crew uh, in Los Angeles, California, in the heyday of, uh, of recording there in the 60s, 70s, um, that Hal had passed away. Hal was 90 years old, and um, it, it was a tremendous loss you know, to, to our industry, he was truly one of the maybe last remaining living legends, at least in terms of when you think of rock and roll drumming, studio drumming, legendary, incredible number of recordings. Many people say that he's the most recorded drummer ever. I dislike that. Uh, (laughs) I don't like absolutes, as you probably know, the most this or the most that or the all time this, um, you know, being a historian, there are many drummers that could make that claim. Buddy Harmon down in Nashville did 18,000 sessions or 18,000 songs are credited, uh, to his title. Earl Palmer, um, has, you know, a claim to that as well. The, the world's most recorded drummer. So let's leave that aside. Uh, but, it, but no one can deny that Hal Blaine, uh, had an, an insane legacy. So, you know, probably many of you know about Hal, you know, you know, you've, you've seen tributes, you've listened to interviews, you've checked out videos on the web, 
Um, and you'll no doubt be hearing a lot more as Hal is um, rightly so uh, eulogized uh, for his legendary career. So I want to pay tribute to Hal today in a little bit of a different way. I want to do it through my own personal reminiscence, reminiscences of, of Hal, of uh, times that I personally connected with him over the years. I was able to interview him on several occasions. Um, we became friends. I wouldn't necessarily say we were close friends, but, um, you know, I could call him or shoot him an email and I'd hear back from him. And, and, uh, he, he was a very, very sweet guy. And in a way, you know, his, I can sort of chart the entire course of my career in this industry, which is now getting close to being 30, hitting the 30 year mark. Uh, through, you know, I can sort of look at all the different times and ways that I accessed Hal over the years. And I think it'll add a little bit more of a personal touch and uh, also offer perhaps information about Hal or some cool stories that that will add a, a different perspective than you're probably going to hear from a lot of the other tributes. So without further ado, it's a sort of my Daniel Glass's personal tribute to Hal through through my own uh, experiences of him uh, throughout the last almost 30 years. And we'll start in January of 1991. I had literally moved, I think I moved to Los Angeles to begin music school at the Dick Grove School of Music and to be, begin my formal official career as a drummer. Yes, I'm doing this. I think I moved in January 7th, uh, 1991. School started shortly after that. It was the beginning of the new term. And, uh, and, I miraculously was able to get into my first NAM show just a few weeks later. Of course, everybody knows NAM is usually held uh, the third or fourth weekend of January. So I just got into LA. I didn't even know what NAM was, but I got there and, you know, it was a little easier to get into the show back then. Somebody gave me their, their pass and you could just walk in, even if your pass didn't have your name on it. And so here I am, a wide-eyed kid my early 20s, wandering around the NAMM show, just got to L.A., very exciting time. And who do I run into um, at a small table selling uh, his book, The Wrecking Crew? None other than Hal Blaine. Now, unbeknownst to me, Hal's now quite famous book, it's, it's actually called Hal Blaine and the Wrecking Crew, had only been released the previous year, 1990. So this was the first NAM show where he was promoting it. So he had this little table, stacks of the book there. He was selling them and signing them. Now, I didn't know that much about Hal Blaine, but uh, I had sort of been aware enough of the world of drumming and had been researching it to know who he was. So I bought a copy of the book. And Hal signed it for me. He was a very nice gent. And uh, as I was, you know, beginning my journey in Los Angeles, I uh, was reading this book and learning all about the history of the recording scene in Los Angeles and this guy, you know, Hal Blaine and what he had done. So I think at this point, let's take just a couple minutes to, to offer some brief career highlights. And of course, there is I could talk for two hours just about Hal's career highlights. They are so ridiculous. But, you know, he basically came up uh, in on the East Coast, and then his family moved to California when he was a younger man. Um, I believe it was because he had, it was his father, I think, had kind of chronic asthma-like conditions, so the family moved to a warmer climate. Uh, drier climate, Southern California, 
uh, and he had the opportunity to kind of be exposed to that scene when he was young. And then he went to uh, the Roy Knapp School, very famous music school. He, he went to, into the Army for three years, Hal did, and then he attended uh, the Roy Knapp School um, from 1949 to 1952. And Roy Knapp, you know, was a, a legendary teacher of an earlier generation. He had... Um, he had taught people like Louis Belson and Gene Krupa and scores of other legendary drummers who would go on to populate the aforementioned Buddy Harmon, who also used his GI Bill to go to Roy Knapp School and then went down to Nashville and basically created uh, the template for modern country drumming. Uh, Fred Bilo, who was one of the most famous drummers in the Chicago blues scene of the 1950s with Muddy Waters, um, Little Walter, Howlin' Wolf, you know, one of those great chess, uh, not, yeah, uh, yeah, chess records studio drummers. He had gone to um, uh, Roy Knapp's school. Uh, Bobby Rosengarten, who had gone to become one of the most famous New York studio drummers, he was a graduate of Roy Knapp's school. So Hal Blaine was among very good company, and that school really produced a lot of incredible people. And as I said, over the years, Krupa and Belson had both gone to Chicago to study with Roy Knapp. Uh, so, um, it, it, you know, he, after school, that's when he went back and, and then he got involved in early rock and roll and started working with, uh, Tommy Sands, um, who was, you know, an early sort of clean cut rock and roll star of the 1950s. And through that, that led Hal into, uh, recording. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's a really wonderful story how, the, the, the term the wrecking crew got established. People just sort of know of this legendary band of musicians, recording musicians in LA. But you have to remember at this time period, which is sort of the late fifties and early sixties, rock and roll was a very street kind of a thing. It was not, you know, uh, populated by music school graduates. Um, both the artists and the musicians who were playing this music were from the street, essentially were, uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, music from the from the street up, and this is very unusual because most popular music at that time had been recorded and performed by very elite, high level studio musicians who had gone to conservatories and were classically trained, um, and or they were trained jazz musicians, uh, and essentially the quote unquote artists were singers. Uh, so you had, uh, you know, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, you had a, you know, uh, you'd had a songwriter who would write the song. You had a singer who would sing the song. You had a, a musician who would perform the song. And all of these were sort of separate job headings um, and did not uh, intermingle. There was very little of what today we would call a singer-songwriter. So However, rock and roll was all about that. It was about musicians who didn't have the technical training, but they had this energy and this new beat and um, were influenced by the blues uh, in a way that captured uh, this new young generation, baby boom generation that was coming up in American society. And indeed, the, the fact that it was post-World War II, this music traveled all over the world. Uh, as a way for the new generation, younger generations, to grab onto a music that was different than their than their parents' music, different than what had come in the past, and so, in terms of who was going to play on rock and roll sessions, 
you know, the guys that had, that, that wore suits and ties to the studio who had trained in conservatories were woefully ill-equipped or even jazz musicians like Shelley Mann, who was a major heavyweight on the studio scene at that time. But he had come up playing in the big bands, uh, you know, Woody Herman, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and was not really... Um, rock was not something... It was not a natural vocabulary that spoke to, to, to either of those generations. So the music industry was really scrambling to figure out who to get. And they found guys like Hal Blaine, who were younger guys, guys that maybe had had some training, could read, but were not, um, you know, they were out, they were outsiders. They were, uh, street ruffians compared to the finely tuned, uh, uh, musician that had represented studio, the studio musician scene. And so they, instead of in suits and ties, they would show up in t-shirts and jeans to the sessions. And according to Hal, and this is a very, you know, often they were unshaven, they were smoking cigarettes, you know, they were, they were, uh, they were rep- reflective of what the music was about, which was more of a rebellious, I really don't give a crap, uh, about the older generation kind of an attitude. And so the older stuff, stuffier musicians would say, these kids are going to wreck the business. So as they became more popular and it sort of became this core group that were really redefining what popular music was about, Hal Blaine dubbed them the wrecking crew because they were going to wreck the music business. So that's a great story. Um, and so, you know, over the starting in the sort of the late 50s into the 60s into the 70s hal and and the wrecking crew really um completely defined the sound of rock and pop music uh, i just want to read to you a, 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 some num- numbers from a list not numbers but song titles from a list you can find this list on wikipedia list of recording of songs that hal blaine played on and it's it's literally hundreds, several hundred songs. Uh, it's only a partial list, not a full list. Um, but uh, it, it is an incredible list. Uh, Hazy Shade of Winter, Simon and Garfunkel. He did almost all of Simon and Garfunkel's most important hits, including Bridge Over Troubled Water, The Boxer. Um, Taste of Honey, Herb Alpert. Uh, Taste of Honey has boom, boom, boom. You know, uh, this great little bass drum lick, four quarter notes that just begins each new section of the song. Um, Hal is sort of famous for a lot of drumistic things that entered into music, doing things that previously drummers were not allowed to do in a studio. He had sort of the, 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 you know, the respect of the industry once he established himself to take chances. And that's what was so great about the Wrecking Crew is that they were working hand-in-hand with the artists and the producers to create, you know, these iconic tracks that redefine the state of recording. Um, Similarly to what was coming out of every Beatles album that would come out in the 60s, and I've talked about this before, Um, you know, the 70s, well, 60s and 70s, music coming out of L.A. was just redefining uh, what was possible on a record, and Hal Blaine had a lot to do with that. Um, Elvis, A Little Less Conversation, uh, which was, I believe, recorded for um, Elvis's, uh, oh, it was a 1968 film of Elvis. But um, Hal Blaine has a long uh, record of, uh, a a long list of credits performing with Elvis Presley. And most famously, he was on Elvis's famous, what was called the 1968 Comeback Special 
Elvis had spent most of the 60s doing movies. And so the only recordings he was doing at that time was the soundtrack albums for those movies. He did not perform live for most of the 60s. Um, And when he finally returned to performing, he did it in high fashion as what was called the 68 Comeback Special, which had a bunch of different sections to it. Um, Some of that section... Part one of those sections was like a little live concert with all his guys from the 1950s. So he paid tribute to his his early rock upbringing. But now this is 1968, so he also had these huge, uh, beautiful um, uh, performances done live on these big sound stages. Uh, and Hal Blaine was the drummer on those. Um, along comes Mary by The Association. He played on all the hits by The Association. Never My Love. Uh, that kind of stuff. Um, America, Simon and Garfunkel. I'm just still in the A's, people. <laughs> John Denver, Annie's song. And I have to say, actually, my very first contact with Hal Blaine was in 1975, probably, or 76, when John Denver came to Honolulu, Hawaii. I talk about this in my uh, favorite concerts podcast that I did uh, way back early on when I first started doing these. But... Um, He recorded with John Denver, and he was John Denver's touring drummer in the mid-70s. So I saw Hal Blaine live with John Denver, even though I didn't know. Another Saturday night, Sam Cooke, you know, legendary. Uh, Steely Dan, uh, Any World That I'm Welcome To, um, from Katie Lied. Aquarius, Let the Sun Shine In. Hal Blaine did all the Fifth Dimension tunes, uh, including Up, Up, and Away, which probably was their biggest hit. And that record was record of the year. And for seven years in a row, the drummer on record of the year, I think this is Billboard's, you know, or, oh, the Grammy, Grammy's record of the year, seven years in a row, whoever won that, you know, award, Hal was the drummer. (laughs) It's, it's, it's mind boggling. Uh, Johnny Rivers, he did all the important Johnny Rivers stuff during those eras. Baby Talk, um, that is Jan and Dean. He's on all the important Jan and Dean, Surf City, uh, Little Old Lady from Pasadena. The Beach Boys, of course, one of, one of Hal's primary associations was, uh, with, uh, 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 you know, Brian Wilson. So he did a lot of the important Beach Boy stuff. He played on Pet Sounds. Um, he did a lot of their early hits. He also was majorly associated with Phil Spector. So all the Phil Spector stuff, the Ronettes, um, uh, you know, Ronnie Spector, uh, um, and uh, uh, the Batman theme, uh, Be My Baby, that that was the, the Ronettes. And so all the Phil Spector stuff, the Wall of Sound, the Righteous Brothers, they were part of that Wall of Sound. He's on all the Righteous Brothers stuff. Um, you know, it just it just goes on and on. He he was on uh, uh, California Dreamin', the Mamas and the Papas. California Girls, the Beach Boys. We're up to sea now at this point. Uh, I Can't Help Falling in Love, 1961, Elvis, Blue Hawaii. So he played on a lot of the Elvis movies along with, and this is another great little little factoid, uh, Elvis made, I think, uh, 33 films. And the reason I know that is from my extensive time hanging out uh, with Buddy Harmon, again, as I said, the Nashville drummer. And Elvis was very loyal to his early band. So even though he was no longer performing with that band once he went into the Army, they, um, he featured Scotty Moore, the guitar player, 
DJ Fontana, the drummer, and he brought along Buddy Harmon, who by that point, the early 60s, had established himself as the most important drummer in Nashville. And of course, Elvis, living in Memphis, was not far from Nashville. He was very connected to to the recording scene in Nashville. And they would come out to L.A. to record the movie soundtracks, and they would use Buddy Harmon and DJ Fontana on drums, sometimes together, sometimes separately. And if it was stuff that they couldn't handle, they would bring in West Coast guys like Hal Blaine. So, you know, Hal was, was already around for a lot of those, um, those kind of sessions. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm just uh, Cracklin Rosie, Neil Diamond, another huge hit. Uh, that was a Wrecking Crew song. Da Do Run Run, which I believe was the Crystals. A uh, huge uh, uh, girl group song remade by Sean Cassidy in the 70s when I was a kid. Ha, ha, ha. Daddy, Don't You Walk So Fast, Wayne Newton. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. All the Mamas and Papas stuff. Um, I'm just trying to find some more uh, important tunes. So then he did Everybody Loves Somebody, Dean Martin. So it wasn't just rock and roll. It was some of these great singers, too. He's on Strangers in the Night, Frank Sinatra. Um you know, legendary recordings. Uh, Faking it is that? No, that's that's also Simon and Garfunkel. Um, just a few more here. Good vibrations. Classic Beach Boys, probably one of the most iconic songs of the late '60s uh, that 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 you know established the Beach Boys in a in a much seri- more serious way. Half Breed, Cher. So he did all the Sonny and Cher stuff, uh, or a lot of that. Help me, Rhonda. There's the Beach Boys again. Homeward Bound, Simon and Garfunkel. I Am a Rock, Simon and Garfunkel. All their big hits. It's Hal Blaine. Um, give me just a second. I keep going. If I Were a Carpenter, Bobby Darren. Huge Bobby Darren hit. Um, it Never Rains in Southern California. And uh, just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. A band called The First Edition that had a very young Kenny Rogers. You might not recognize the title, but if you heard the song, you'd be like, yeah, I know that song. Uh, let's see, uh, The Lonely Bull, more more famous Herb Alpert, The Partridge Family, Captain and Tennille, Love Will Keep Us Together. That was one of those seven in a row uh, record of the year. MacArthur Park, the original version, Richard Harris, incredible song before Donna Summer did it. Make Your Own Kind of Music, uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, uh, that's a great tune. Monday, Monday. Uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, The Birds, right? So it just goes on and on and on. And uh, I'm just trying to scroll through this list here and see if I can find any other. He's on the original cast recording of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) How about that? That's pretty amazing. Secret Agent Man, that's Johnny Rivers. Sloop John B., The Beach Boys. Um, There's a song called The Snake by Al Wilson, which we'll talk about a little bit later from 1968. That was also, you may not know it, but it was a very, very important tune. Fifth Dimension, all their stuff. Strangers of the Night, Sinatra, um, again, John Denver. Ah, These Boots Are Made for Walking, Nancy Sinatra. Epic, iconic 60s hit. He's on that. Three's Company theme. And by the way, all of the Carpenters, uh, (laughs) <laughs> Big hits, just in case, you know, I didn't mention those. Top of the world That's what I'm thinking about right now. Then, The Way We Were, The Carpenters. Uh, sorry, Barbara Streisand. One of her most absolutely famous hits. Hal is drumming on it. Ventura Highway by America. You know, I mean, it's just the... the, the oh, and then Wichita Lineman. Um, 
amazing song by Glenn Campbell, who was also a member of the Wrecking Crew. And uh, uh, Jimmy Webb was the guy who wrote that song. Very famous writer. He wrote Up, Up, and Away for the Fifth Dimension. He wrote MacArthur Park. He wrote Wichita Lineman. Everyone knows it's windy. Uh, the Association again. A great, uh, great tune. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice? The Beach Boys. And uh, young girl, get out of my heart. Uh, Gary Puckett and uh, and the Union Gap. Um, my love for you is way out of line. Great song. All right. Anyway, so I've gotten through this list. I won't bore you with with that. But that's just a, a very sort of rough overview of what Hal's career was like. Um, so let's move on to my next date, because I'm still on the first date, which was 1991. So I do want to finish up by saying that, you know, not finish up, but finish up this date by saying that that after the, the NAMM show, I went back and I went back to music school and I told one of my teachers, I told everybody I'd met Hal Blaine. And, you know, one of my teachers was like, yeah, you know, Hal's cool. He did a lot of stuff back in the day, but I just saw him at the baked potato. He's kind of like an old fart the way he plays now. It's not really very hip. And I sort of was like, yeah, because when I go to the baked potato, I see, want to see Vinnie Caliuta and want to see Jeff Percaro and, you know, these much more sophisticated, fancy drummers. And so I, I sort of made note of that, put it on the back burner, and I moved on. And I moved on with my life and my career. And so the next date I have is actually 15 years later uh, because Hal wasn't really on my radar. I finished school, then I got involved in the swing scene. I got involved in, in, in playing all these historical styles of music, vintage drums, and had a career in Warner Brothers and was touring and this and that and the other thing. And so I didn't really emerge and come up from all that until uh, the early... 2000s, when Royal Crown Review was sort of uh, on the downside, and I was researching more and getting back into researching and studying. And so I started interviewing drummers around 99. And um, Hal wasn't really on my radar because I was interviewing older drummers from the, you know, the Louis Belson era. And I was interviewing Earl Palmer uh, and rhythm and blues drummers and bebop drummers and and, uh, rockabilly drummers and all that sort of stuff. But I realized somewhere along the way that I had not formally interviewed Hal Blaine, and I and I figured this is really important. So I actually found the date that I went out and interviewed him, April fifth, two thousand six. I went out to Hal's place in Palm Desert. I had met him a few times, I guess, along the way, but this was the first time we really hung out and spent a few hours together, and it was wonderful. And he was such a lovely man. Um, he was having starting to have some health problems, kind of hard to believe that was 13 years ago. Uh, but you know, he was going in for some kind of an ear thing the next day. Um, and by the way, Palm Desert, I should mention, is sort of, it's adjacent to Palm Springs. So it's out about two hours east and that's where he was living. And that's where he, um, I'm not sure if he was still living there, um, up until his final, final days, but it was kind of a, a flip side because when you, when you read his book, you know he talks about how much money he made and how much uh, how many gold records he had and how he was driving around at Rolls Royce and you know had a mansion and how you know he just he was so in demand and he made so much money as a drummer and of course as a studio musician he probably got a certain amount of residual money when those records would play over and over and over again. Uh, and here he was in 2006 in a in a very plain house out in Palm Desert, totally nondescript, um, nothing on the walls, no paintings, no gold records, no nothing. And, you know, he talked about, this was sort of the, 
the dark side. I mean, he talks about it in his book, but when you see it up close, he, he talked about how he had nothing, how, you know, he essentially, um, I mean, he made, some, let's say he made some bad relationship choices along the way. Uh, I think he was married and divorced six times. And so, um, you know, a, a, most of his fortune went to paying off his ex-wives. And obviously there's some karma there. You know, you don't get married and divorced six times and walk away clean from all of these marriages. And I have a feeling his personal life was very, very rocky. Uh, and so, you know, and he was very bitter about his divorces and that, you know, his ex-wives had taken everything from him. He was actually in a kind of a dark place at that time in 2006. And indeed, there was little or no record of his tremendous, tremendous accomplishments anywhere in that house. I think he had a few little things that he showed me. I'm not, I can't remember, but I certainly don't recall seeing a single gold record on the wall, any of those kind of things. And the guy probably played on, you know, all the song titles I mentioned were all, I'm sure, gold selling, million selling records, and most of them were. So uh, it was an interesting sort of juxtaposition, you know, sort of the downside and and uh, the the you know, the far end of this career. Of course, you know, he wasn't really doing a whole lot of sessions anymore in 2006. Probably in 1991, when I first met him at the NAMM show, he probably already was not doing all that many sessions anymore. And so, you know, you have to think, say, from 1990 to 2019, uh, that's almost, what is it, like you know, 2020 would be 30 years. So the last 30 years, what's Hal doing to make a living? He's writing a book. He's maybe getting royalties. He's, you know, living on the legacy, but, uh, I can't imagine it, it, it's not all glamor. And, uh, um, so that was an interesting experience. But one of the, one of the other interesting things is that Earl, um, Hal Blaine did some uh, double drumming. He did a double drumming session or two with Earl Palmer. And that was one of the things I actually first learned about it from Earl, who was another drummer that I became friendly with in the last sort of decade of his life. And um, what what really is, gives me chills is that Hal, um, you know, lived actually pretty close to Earl. Earl had retired in either Banning or Beaumont, which are these sort of subdivisions uh, somewhere near Redlands, which is also on the way to Palm Springs. So, um, you know, a lot of these sort of giant um, retirement communities for seniors there. And Earl had also had a lot of troubles in financial troubles and troubles with drugs and other things in the latter decades of his life. Um, But he and Hal were friends. And I remember one time I was interviewing Earl at his place out in Banning or Beaumont, and he got a call from Hal. And I'm sitting there like, you know, just being a fly on the wall listening to this conversation going, man, I'm sitting in Earl Palmer's house listening to him have a conversation with Hal Blaine. It was just like mind exploding, totally surreal moment. Um, But, you know, they had done some double drumming together during the Wrecking Crew period. Of course, Earl was also a member of the Wrecking Crew. In fact, he had gotten to L.A. a few years before Hal and was already established when Hal came to town. And some of Hal's earliest work was were rock and roll sessions that Earl was not able to do. So they were very good friends and had remained so. Um, I believe the double drumming stuff was on a... I want to say either a Jan and Dean track or a Righteous Brothers track. I'll try to put the definitive answer in the in the show notes. But um, 
I'll talk more about that later and definitely give you a way where you can find out from Hal himself about that. I asked him about that on a live um, internet radio program that I'll be talking about. So flash forward two more years now. It's 2008, and the movie The Wrecking Crew, uh, which is a tremendous documentary made by, uh, I believe, Denny Tedesco, who is the son of Tommy Tedesco, um, who was one of the Wrecking Crew musicians. And Denny's a documentary filmmaker and uh, I think also a musician. He uh, sort of um, made this project his mission. And it, it at that time, the movie had not been released because the licensing to get this, you know, the songs that the Wrecking Crew played on was incredibly expensive. So what they were doing was instead of actually releasing the film in any formal way, the film was done, they started having, tar- having targeted screenings around uh, in different places. And of course, they had a bunch in the LA area. So June 28th, I've got that date too. June 28th, 2008, I went to see a screening of the Wrecking Crew movie. The, it, it literally was just, had just been completed or was, you know, uh, in, a, in a state where it could be shown publicly. Uh, gotten the editing, you know, close enough that it was basically a finished product. And this was an amazing, magical night. It, the showing was at in downtown LA, right amongst all the tall office buildings in a place called the California Plaza. California Plaza, I think it is still there, but I'm not sure. I've, I've been gone myself from LA for almost 10 years now, but it was an outdoor plaza in between a whole bunch of office buildings where people could go and sit during the day. They could go have their lunch. There were tables. And because it was LA and the desert and hot, they had these beautiful fountains and like, almost like, uh, ponds, or something that sort of wound around. Um, and the centerpiece of those ponds was a large stage that came out over the water. And then across on the other side of the water, people could sit and there were multi-level places with tables and there were sort of like big steps that you could sit on and, uh, you know, have your lunch and whatnot. It was a beautiful place. Royal Crown Review did several, they had like a lunchtime concert series there for all the business people uh, with great bands. They would have concerts there at night. Uh, and this screening of The Wrecking Crew happened in the evening. And I went to this screening and the movie was incredible. They showed the movie, you know, just like it was like you're at the drive-in theater. It was outdoors at night, beautiful Southern California night. And at the end, after the screening, they had a concert featuring several of the Wrecking Crew veterans and then a bunch of other musicians performing some of the famous Wrecking Crew hits. And I remember distinctively um, that Chuck Berghofer was playing bass. And as a result of that, they did These Boots Are Made For Walking, of course, the very famous uh, Nancy Sinatra hit. Um, which has this cool bass walk down. And and then they also performed California Dreaming, which of course is the famous Mamas and Papas hit. And these were just two examples of, of songs that the Wrecking Crew had played on. So the three original Wrecking Crew members that were there, Don Randy, piano player, who would go on to open the famous Baked Potato in North Hollywood, which is still open today. I think his son, Justin Randy, operates it, but Don Randy is still around, and he used to always be hanging out at the Baked Potato. So every time you'd go to the Baked Potato, you were experiencing the legacy of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, Chuck Berghofer, the bass player, as I mentioned, who's actually an extraordinary jazz bass player, but he played on a lot of these hits, and Hal was there. And I got a picture of Hal, myself and Hal, that day that a friend of mine 
posted on uh, on his Facebook page uh, just yesterday. A guy who's a recording engineer, uh, Paul. I will will not give you his last name, but uh, and I said, "Oh, you were the guy that took that picture," and it's a great picture of Hal and I. So it's I'm using it as the the photo for this um, for this uh, tribute uh, podcast. Now, the reason I mention all this is that it was at this moment when the first notes of these boots are made for walking kicked in and it sounded just like the record and it sounded phenomenal. It was at that moment that I expunged the words of my music school teacher from 17 years earlier. Ah, Hal, he's just playing like an old fart. Now he's just an old man. And yeah, whatever. He's kind of, you know, past his time. It's cool and all, but, and with, uh, 17 years of drum history perspective and research and interviews and really understanding and digging into these old records and playing older styles of music myself, suddenly I, it was like a light bulb went on. I mean, that Hal truly was the master of, of this stuff and a master of, of drumming. Uh, I think there's only one other time I sort of had a similar experience, which is one of the first times I saw Bernard Purdy play in the Hotel of a Lobby uh, hotel lobby, I think it was at the Hilton uh, at the NAMM show, also fairly shortly after I got to L.A. And he was playing with a band, and they were playing like some kind of soul funk stuff. And it was just like, holy crap, this sounds exactly like those records. Exactly. Like, you know, when you just get it, you go, okay, now I understand why this guy is the legend and the genius that he is. So, light bulb went on, I got it. Let's jump now uh, four more years later to 2012, and I am uh, shooting my Century Project DVD. Uh, We shot it in 2012. I think it came out in 2013. Uh, For those of you that know of it or maybe don't know of it, uh, it is a a hundred-year uh, a look at 100 years of the evolution of drumming. And it starts in 1865 at the end of the Civil War and takes you all the way up to 1965 and the British invasion. And the reason why I uh, created this was to sort of bookend the story of the drum set. Um, in 1865, there really was not a drum set to speak of, at least the way we think of a drum set today, but that's when the origins of it were really starting to come together. And by 1965, certainly the story of the drum set doesn't end there, but the blueprint that was created by that point we is really the blueprint that we still follow when we set up a drum set, the different parts of the drum set, how we use them, particularly in like a rock and pop situation. And, you know, even though we've electrified drums and the sets have gotten enormous and they've gotten minimal and we've added 15 pedals and, you know, pads and triggers and all that, basically the, the drum set is still the same instrument it was in 1965. And if you want to argue with me about that, I welcome uh, your attempts to do so, because I'm going to stuff it. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I feel very strongly about this point, but I always love discussing things with people, and I am proven wrong all the time, and that's that's fine. The reason I bring up the Century Project and Hal Blaine is that when I was beginning to put the dates together to actually shoot it, um, you know, I sort of was letting people know in the vintage drumming community and the classic drumming communities and the drum history communities and all this kind of stuff. And lots of amazing things fell into my lap shortly before shooting the Century Project, uh, sort of as if by magic, uh, as if the universe or God knew, you know, I uh, was about ready to, 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 to 
commit this thing to, you know, to video. And, um, I, you know, uh, wasn't going to have, uh, you know, I needed all the help I could get. And so lots of things dropped into my lap just before shooting that were kind of miraculous. And one of them is that I was contacted by a student of mine who said, yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Hal Blaine had a big band in the seventies and he had these really cool band fronts, meaning those music stands of the kind they used to have in the swing era where, where the, the band, uh, you know, the music stands would actually be a little, um, I don't know what you, how you'd call them, but they, you know, they call them band fronts, uh, and it's where you put the music, but they would have the logo of the band. They would have, maybe they could light up a whole bunch of different uh, varieties of what these looked like. And the, the band fronts for Hal Blaine's big band, which, by the way, never actually gigged, um, it, uh, it, it was uh, a, a rehearsal band. And then I don't think they ever actually gigged, or maybe they just did one or two gigs. So it was a, a project. And there's, I think maybe one recording of a rehearsal. Uh, and there's just a few photos of the, the band and the setup and a friend of mine, a student of mine, as I mentioned, said, I've got four of these, uh, that he had picked up. Uh, they were at a place called drum city, which was run by a guy named Roy Hart, who actually was one of the first drummers that I interviewed when I started, uh, interviewing the older drummers back in 99. And, uh, Roy Hart had several of these bandstands at his, 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 his music, music, music store. Drum City was in Hollywood, right around the corner of the drum shop is now. It was on Santa Monica Boulevard, right around the corner from Vine. And it was like a museum. I went in there a bunch of times, found some really uh, cool old vinyl, and talked to Roy, interviewed Roy. Uh, Roy Hart, who was the proprietor. Roy had been a partner with Remo when uh in in drum city uh, remo was a part owner of that remo belly and remo left drum city and then went on to create remo Drumheads in the late 50s so these things keep stretching farther and farther back and i could go on with all this kind of information all day because this is what i love talking about but needless to say when drum city closed my student max inherited these four band fronts from hal blaine's big band and he said, do you want to use these in the Century Project? And I said, are you freaking kidding me? Of course I do. So if you look and watch the Century Project, all of the band sequences that, that sort of are designed to look like a big band, even though the, the, most, the, 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 the largest number of horns we have on, on stage at any one time is four. Um, I think that was partly because I only had the four band fronts. And these band fronts were super heavy. They were made of plywood uh, or something along that line. But they're designed to look like um, blue sparkle floor toms that have sort of been cut in half. So if you imagine a semicircle uh, coming up about, uh, say, three and a half, four feet off the ground, and then a front that you would drop on top of them. And your music would set on those. And they all had uh, a giant uh, outlet uh, boxes where you could plug in uh, stuff, and they could all be chained together. You could connect through, you know, extension cords, all of them together. So you plug one in and they all had power where you could plug, uh, you could put a light, a stand light, you know, it was 
probably a total fire hazard. But, <laughs> and actually, one of the horn players, or no, I think it was the banjo player, dropped one of those stands on his foot, and I thought I was going to get sued during the making of this production because his foot was swollen up pretty bad. But amazingly, uh, we got through it, and the Hal Blaine band fronts are memorialized in the Century Project. So I'm very proud of that. I'll put um, a, a, either a link to a video or a clip in the show notes. You can go check that out. So flashing forward some more now. Well, it's actually the same year, 2012. I get involved with the guys at Hudson Music and with Steve Smith and with Joe Bergamini. And we start putting together the book, The Roots of Rock Drumming. I was super prolific as an author uh, and, a, and a, a DVD producer. I think I between 2011 and 2013, I put out two books and two DVDs alone in those two years. It was insane. Insane. Um, but... Of course, the book, uh, The Roots of Rock Drumming, was interviews with 23 of the legends of rock drumming, and Hal Blaine was one of those. Now, I did not do that Hal Blaine interview. Steve Smith had done that. But I got the transcripts as the editor of the book. I got the transcripts of all 23 interviews, two of which were interviews I had conducted, and the rest had been done either by Steve Smith or Rob Wallace or um, uh, Paul Siegel. And uh, so... You know, I then got another deep dive into Hal, and the information that I culled out of this interview was incredible. Um, And I'll just tell you a couple of quick tidbits that I learned from this interview. The first is uh, the disco beat, what we call the disco beat. And um, I had not realized this, but according to Hal... Blaine, he pioneered what we call the disco beat, which is, of course, a beat that became very popular in the mid-70s with the rise of disco. It's a four-on-the-floor beat, and you open and close the hi-hat rhythmically. And, of course, there's the 16th note version, where instead of just playing eighth notes on the hat, you play 16th. So, right? So, you know, guys of my generation who came up in the 70s and the 80s, that was when you went and took drum lessons, that was a stock beat that you learned. And it's it's used in a lot of other styles other than disco. But prior to, um, you know, disco, of course, had its heyday in the mid-70s. But earlier than that, Hal Blaine began experimenting with this idea of opening and closing the hi-hat. And that was not something, believe it or not, not something that was done on recordings. Um, jazz drummers were sort of ding, 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 you know, you might hit it and open and close it once here or there. But uh, according to Hal, you know, most rock producers did not like that effect, that right of the open and closing hi-hat. They said it sounded like white noise, which is interesting because, you know, it would go from being something producers hated to being something that every producer had to use within like a 10-year period. So in 1966, there is a recording that Hal did with Johnny Rivers, who, of course, was a, a big rock star of the, of the second half of the 60s and early 70s. Um, he, his biggest hit in the 70s was the rock and pneumonia and the boogie-woogie flu. In the 60s, uh, he did Secret Agent Man. He was a rock, you know, rock singer, uh, kind of light rock, I guess you could say. Um, and uh, um, he did a song called The Poor Side of Town. You can look this up or maybe I'll include it on, um, on, on, again in the show notes. Uh, but Hal started using that 
And Johnny Rivers said, I like that, leave it in. So the artist overrode the producer. Needless to say, that song became a huge hit. And within a short period of time, every producer in, in Los Angeles wanted that to be on their record. And by the time you get to the mid-70s and the Bee Gees and Donna Summer and all that, that now you had to have that open and close be a part of the groove. And that became what we call the disco beat. Again, today, I think you, you'll find it in every kind of style of pop music. It still is around, but it's not... Uh, it's so ubiquitous now that it's not anything that is considered to be unique. Uh, but what we do call that the disco beat. So Hal is sort of credited with popularizing that particular hi-hat trick on, uh, on recordings. Um, moving ahead, uh, there's, uh, another, um, uh, also from the late sixties, uh, which, which is Hal's monster kit, 1968. This of course, you know, Prior to this time, drummers had used very small drum sets in the studios. Uh, if you look at pictures of all these famous studio drummers, which I have in every genre, usually it was just one ride, one hi-hat, kick, snare, and maybe one or two toms. That's about it. How, by the late 60s, seeing what was happening in the world of rock and roll around him, began bringing larger and larger setups into the studio, culminating with... Um, you know, what he called the monster kit, which was, again, uh, in a huge number of uh, concert toms, all set up on racks. Remember, concert toms, mind you, are tom-toms that have no bottom head, and um, bass drum, front head off, and he popularized this. So you could check out a song by a soul singer named Al Wilson, recorded in 1968, that's the first use of Hal's monster kit. And there's a little guitar intro for four bars, and then there's this huge tom fill, and it gets into the song. And so, again, this, you know, he, what he said is that Ludwig then, he created this idea using Ludwig drums. He wanted to call it the Hal Blaine signature kit, and then Ludwig just stole it, and he showed, it showed up in next year's catalog with a totally different name and uncredited to Hal. But that, of course, launched drum companies having these much larger kits uh, starting in 68 that would then be pervasive and are still pervasive today. Um, of course, the most famous usage of Hal Blaine's of that monster kit is the song called Indian Reservation by Paul Revere and the Raiders. I think it came out in 70 or 71 when I was a kid. Um, that song was everywhere, and it has, you know, Cherokee people, you know, it's just monster toms everywhere. So that song had a huge impact. Um, and of course, so many others that, that Hal used it on. So while I was working on this book, The Roots of Rock Drumming, it had, uh, I'm learning all this stuff about Hal Blaine. All right, so we're wrapping it up. We're getting close to the end. Moving forward another six years now, it's September 16th, 2018, just last fall. And um, for those of you uh, maybe have heard of a really terrific internet radio program called Around the Kit by a guy named, uh, who is hosted the show is hosted by a guy named Joe Ganzis. I've been on Joe's program umpteen times. And he called me and said, um, you know, I actually, we had done a couple of tribute shows. We did a tribute show to Gene Krupa and dedicated his whole three-hour program to Krupa. And then we did one on Tony Williams. Uh, and he said, 
you know, I pitched him on the idea, let's do one on Hal Blaine. Cause we were always doing these tribute shows to drummers that were no longer around. And I said, Hal is such a legend. Let's have him on and let's get a whole bunch of drummer guests to come on and tribute Hal. So we, we ended up, it took us a whole year. I tried to do it in 2017. I couldn't reach Hal. The whole idea fell by the wayside. And then another year later, I said, you know, Joe, Hal's birthday is coming up. He's going to be turning 90 in 2019. Let's, let's do this while he's 89 and, you know, who knows how his health is going to be. So we, I end, ended up getting a hold of Hal. He was totally down to do it. And we had Greg Bissonette, uh, Kenny Aronoff, Steve Smith, Don Lombardi, the founder of DW, and many other great drummers, Dennis Dyken uh, from the Smithereens, who wrote a terrific article about Hal in Modern Drummer, Rob Wallace, who was one of the founders of of the collective and uh, is the, still today the owner of Hudson Music, the great, uh, created all these wonderful DVDs, drum DVDs, uh, David Stanek, Robin Flans, very famous uh, author, um, uh, rather interviewer who interviewed everyone from Modern Drummer and was very close to Hal. So we had this really fantastic tribute. And uh, I was just texting with Joe last night when we found out about Hal's passing, uh, that we were so lucky and honored to do it. And Hal, 89 years old, at first he seemed a little slow on the uptake and I didn't know how things were going to go. And then he got into it and talked for three hours uh, with his guests, everybody comes on, you just call in from wherever you are and you can hear the whole thing. So I'm going to put the link up to that because you get to hear Hal tell his own story, uh, and interact with all these wonderful guests who were tributing him. It was just a very special night. And what really knocked me out about Hal was that for someone who had such an incredible legacy, he had absolutely no, um, no qualms about, uh, um, you know, he, he had no, uh, ego. He was totally humble, uh, giving credit to everyone else and was just such a beautiful person, such a beautiful, um, man, uh, such a mensch, as we would say in Hebrew, you know, such a solid character. Uh, it just really blew me away. He was, you know, with this legacy and all he had been through, he was just super grateful and had such wonderful nuggets of wisdom. So I encourage you all to check that out. And this tribute is going to wrap up right now because I actually have to get out the road to a sound check. But last night, last night, yesterday, I found out that Hal had passed away. And I found out at around six o'clock in the evening. I was devastated, of course. It was, I mean, he was old. He was 90. And luckily, they had a big party for him at NAM this year. There were tributes. It was really a beautiful thing. But uh, it was sudden. And I don't think anybody was expecting it. So the tributes were starting to fly. And this is a real chicken skin moment because I was... I found out as I was getting ready to go to my Monday night gig at Birdland and I get to Birdland and I posted something and changed my profile picture shot of Hal and I, and we start the show. And the very first song was a mashup that our uh, piano player had put together an arrangement of, um, a famous Sinatra song, fly me to the moon along with up, up and away fifth dimension. Hal Blaine had played on it. Bing light bulb goes off in my mind. The next person, that was the first song of the night. The second song of the night, uh, they have guest artists all the time, was a woman named Jenna Esposito. She's a regular. And she brings up a chart of Be My Baby, which is Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes, famous Phil Spector song, girl group tune of the 60s. And it includes this iconic intro by Hal Blaine. Boom, 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 bah. 
boom, 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 bah. So I'm like, oh my God, the first two songs of our night here at Birdland, and they both are famous, iconic Hal Blaine performances. So after that song, I actually stopped the show and asked the host if I could share a little bit about Hal Blaine. And I was lucky enough to like tell a room full of people at Birdland about Hal's legacy. And it was just an absolutely beautiful moment and a great way to kind of wrap up this entire uh, tribute. Um, so there it is, 1991, January 91 to March 2019, my reminiscences of Hal Blaine. I hope you enjoyed this. Hal's a powerful, wonderful figure. Do everything you can to listen to his music because it is obviously still all around us. We hear it all the time. And he really was uh, not only a, an incredible visionary as a drummer, but also as a human being. So I leave you with that, and I thank you. Uh, if you enjoy this, please follow me on Facebook, Daniel Glass, Drummer, Author, Educator. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and please, if you have any feedback, shoot us an email. And thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Drummer's Resource wherever you get your podcast uh, downloads and have a super swinging day, cats. Be well. <laughs> <laughs>